You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 6. This episode, I'm talking with IMAX producer Chris Palmer. Chris is a professor, speaker, author, and environmental wildlife film producer who has swum with dolphins and whales, come face-to-face with sharks and Kodiak bears, camped with wolf packs, and waded hip-deep through the Everglades swamps. Chris serves on the American University's full-time faculty as distinguished film producer in residence. In 2004, he founded AU's Center for Environmental Filmmaking at the School of Communication, which seeks to inspire a new generation of filmmakers and media experts to create informative, ethically sound, and entertaining work that makes a difference. Chris also serves as president of the McGillivray Freeman Films Educational Foundation, which produces and funds IMAX films on conservation issues. McGillivray Freeman Films is the world's largest and most successful producer of IMAX films. Over the past 30 years, Chris has spearheaded the production of more than 300 hours of original programming for primetime television and the IMAX industry. His films have been broadcast on numerous channels, including Animal Planet, the Disney Channel, PBS, and TBS. His IMAX films include Whales, Wolves, Dolphins, Bears, Coral Reef Adventure, and The Grand Canyon Adventure. In the course of his career, he has worked with the likes of Robert Redford, Paul Newman, Jane Fonda, and Ted Turner. His work has won him and his colleagues many awards, including two Emmys and an Oscar nomination. And from his treasure trove of experience came his two controversial and entertaining memoirs about the dark side of wildlife filmmaking, Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker and Shooting in the Wild, links to which can be found on masterwildlifefilmmaking.com under the resources section of this episode's webpage. Chris, thanks so much for taking your time out this afternoon to uh, to speak with me on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. And Jake, I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for the honor of having me on. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure. Now, um, Chris, first of all, for our listeners, can you just give me a, a kind of short introduction to how you got into wildlife filmmaking? Because I know yours wasn't a typical kind of entry into the industry. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, and until I was about mid-30s, I knew nothing about film or video or television. All I knew was how to turn on the NBC News at night. That's all I knew. Um, before, before, uh, up to my 30s, I was an environmental activist. I uh, would start in my career designing warships and, you know, worked on Capitol Hill, worked, worked for a, a, a U.S. senator, Jimmy Carter, and so on. Um, so I had a variety of different jobs. In my early 30s, I started thinking about, I was working for the National Audubon Society and as an environmental lobbyist, I began to think, how can I be more influential? How can I do more, achieve more in my work, as a, as a, as in my job to protect the environment? And it occurred, the obvious thought occurred to me, well, if I uh, were to help elect the congressmen and senators in the first place who are better oriented towards the environment to protect the environment that would be an advantage that would be instead of me lobbying i I, you know they would already be persuaded to do do the right thing to protect climate change and all all the other things so um 
So I formed a, I developed some ideas and formed a partnership with the cable mogul Ted Turner. And uh, it's a long story, which I write about in one of my books, Shooting in the Wild. Um, but the bottom line is that um, he gave me millions of dollars uh, to make uh, films. And we made about 60 or 70 of them over about a 10-year uh, period, all of them with celebrities in them and all on focused on different environmental um, issues. So, so, Jake, that's how I got into television. And then from then, I mean, that, that's incredible. That's a, a huge amount of, of output in terms of um, uh, making shows over that period of time. And then you went on, I know you had a, a big career with making IMAX movies. And uh, so you go, yeah. go ahead, tell us a little bit about the IMAX movies. Well, um, what I, once I got into television with Ted Turner, um, and we got our shows on public television and TBS, Superstation, then I began uh, in a very entrepreneurial way doing other things. I started getting into, into video games, started getting into PSAs, started getting into um, educational outreach, started getting into IMAX films, started getting into movies. We did things in all these air areas and, and others, um, computer games. Um, in terms of IMAX, um, I uh, got very interested in it and um, raised seven, uh, let's see, it, uh, I raised, um, for my first IMAX film was on Wales, uh, and we raised uh, $3.2 million for a film uh, on on Wales, and it did very well. It grossed, uh, it's still making money, it's grossed about $60, $70 million. Um, and and uh, that led me into a career, uh, along with lots of other things I was doing at the same time, in producing IMAX films. I now work with the legendary film IMAX filmmaker, uh, uh, Greg McGilvery. Greg McGilvery at McGilvery Freeman Films. I'm the president of the McGilvery Freeman Films Educational Foundation. And our latest IMAX film was, is National Park's Adventure with Robert Redford. Greg directed it and uh, his son Sean produced it. And it's doing very well. It's the highest grossing IMAX film this year in the world um, and uh, it's um, it's all about pro promoting the national parks oh wow and I've not had a chance to see that one yet but I've seen many of your others over the years um, I mean IMAX films tend to be that very blue chip um, you know giving a sense of grandeur I mean it's an incredible uh, format to work in I'm sure yeah um, exactly exactly so Jake and, and you're right about that because they're evergreens because they go on for years so so you don't you won't find them in them anything about um, uh, uh, um, Lot, uh, legislation that you want to get passed, or ish, you know, they're they're more they're more general. They're they're like I like them to the tip of a spear. They you know they 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 allow lots of things in their wake where we can tell people specific things to do. Um, but um, the, the the films themselves are about forty minutes long, and they and they tend to be very enveloping and and um, and uh, you know big big screen. Uh, it, it, that's right, not 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 um, not specific to any particular um, uh, legislative issue. Yeah. 
Yeah, now I, I know from reading your books, Shooting in the Wild, and um, also uh, Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker, which came out, I believe, last year. Um, right. Great books, and um, you know they're, they're they're really insightful because they deal very much with the ethics in wildlife filmmaking. And um, you know, I, I I find these fascinating because I think it's a, a big move for someone like yourself to come out and say, you know, there were times throughout your career where you felt you were ethically not doing the right thing by making a certain movie in the way it was made. Um, and I think it's fascinating to see it from an insider's point of view. And um, they're very, very good books, well worth reading. Um, and I know a turning point came for you in the um, IMAX film Wolves. Um, and yeah. in uh, Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker, you speak about how you had a showing of the film. And uh, afterwards, you opened up the, the floor to audience questions. And a, a young uh, boy, I believe, asked you a question mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. how you managed to film a mother and her cub, a wolf mother and cub, in her den. Right. And I'll let you c complete that and, and, and say what happened. Yeah. Well, what happened was I got a shock to my, a visceral shock to my, to my body because the this young person said to me, well, as you just said, how did you get that shot? And to give background here, Jake, when we made the film, um, we didn't think much about it. We just, were, we just did whatever we needed to do to get the shot, because that's what filmmakers do. You do whatever you do to get the shot. And we often very rarely think about ethics. You, you know, if you need, to, you need to rent an animal or you need to set something up or you need to stage something, um, filmmakers, for the most part, just think of that as filmmaking and go ahead and do it. What this young, this question this young person uh, made me do, made me think was, oh my gosh. I mean, I, he, he said to me, oh, how'd you get that shot? And so I had to make a split second decision. Do I answer the question and give away that fact that we, that we staged it? Or do I, um, as many filmmakers do, hide what went on and, and, um, and treat them like trade secrets, like a magician treats their tricks, and not say anything about it. And I think a lot of filmmakers would, would, would go that route. In fact, I've seen that happen many times. People have asked how you got a shot, and, and the filmmaker will say, well, that's a trade secret. I can't really talk about that. And, but, but in this case, um, I decided in that split second, I said to myself, look, I'm just going to tell the truth. And I said, well, we actually rented those wolves we made the the den. We dug it out ourselves. We made the den, an artificial den. Um, um, and that's how we got the shot. And when I said this, Jake, I could feel, I could feel the disappointment, the visceral disappointment in the room. And it really, and it really spoke to me. I thought, oh my gosh. So I said to myself, gosh, we have done something that once the audience knows we've done it, they are disappointed. And that struck me as something was wrong with that. You know, if, if the audience doesn't, if they knew the truth and wouldn't like it, then I felt we were doing something wrong. There was something wrong with what was happening. And so... Um, and so that 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 was one of the things that led me to 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 think hard about the ethics of wildlife filmmaking. 
And and uh, you actually say in there that it's not like you didn't say in the credits that they were captive animals that were used for filming. It was actually quoted in the credits that they were captive animals and where they well, came from. Well, in a way, what, what, what we did was in the credits, we simply thanked the game farm from which we we rented the animals so but we didn't announce in big letters those animals were rented we simply amongst all the credits um and in an imax film as you may record jake all the credits go vast very quickly and there's a vast number of names on one screen is vast and so you put a lot of names on it and so hardly anybody's going to pick that up where it says in small print you know thanks to the uh, wild animals on montana for the for the wolves i mean no one's going to see it so it yes we you know we could we could claim we didn't hide anything in the credits, but we really did because we knew no one was going to see that. Right. So this opens up a, a really a huge scale of ethics that you go through in your books. And just to, I, I kind of want to tackle these one at a time because it, it's a big gamut. I mean, it, we're running from uh, a few examples, um, you know, filming um, ethically shot footage, but then adding Foley sound to it after, all the way to using things like captive insects within kind of little, you know, uh, man-made theaters, uh, manipulating wildlife. Uh, things like I know you talk about uh, using whale calls to call whales in, um, placing skulls and um, other things on the bottom of the ocean to tell a story, right through to things like handling wildlife, manipulating wildlife, and altering behavior. Which you know, in the more recent years, we've seen a lot of that with this kind of cheaper reality-led television. Right. Um, and you know, I'm I'm very much guilty of this as well throughout my career. Um, I had a situation a few years ago filming in South Africa with baboons and there was a baboon that I got very close to because it had been rehabilitated by humans put back into the uh -huh. wild it was on its own living a solitary life now and we were kind of told you know you can get as close as you like it's habituated to humans and i did and it, and it actually went to kind of bite me it gave me a warning and shooed me away and that well. woke me up to you know the the ethical practice of of getting too close to animals so just working from the bottom of the scale up if you like um you talk about uh your imax film bears bringing it home and showing it to your wife and your wife being amazed and saying, wow, you know, that scene of the bear catching or, or uh, um, playing with the water, uh, trying to catch fish. And you can hear the droplets of water dropping off the paws and the splashing in the water. How did you do that? And, and when you gave the explanation, your, your wife was pretty upset with that. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes, um, it's 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 it, it, yeah. So I brought the film home and showed it to to Gail, my my wife, and um, and you just you told the story very well. She looked at it and said, "That's a fantastic scene. I love that picture of the the, the, the scene of the of the bear climbing down the mountain, step you know, stepping through the water, and and you and." And then, and as you just said, she said to me, "Well, but wait a minute. How did you? Oh, and I, so I explained that we were across a valley with a powerful lens, telescopic lens, and that's how we got the, that's how we got the shot." And so then she thought a minute. She said, "Well, wait a minute. Then how did you get the sound of the water dripping off the paws and I, uh, of the paws of the bears?" And I said to her, um, "Oh, well, actually." You know, I've got a very clever sound guy. He put water in a in a basin, splashed it around with his 
mop's hand and elbow recorded the sounds of the splashing and dropping of the water droplets and and then matched it cleverly matched it to the to the to the footage and Gail looked at me. Now remember, Gail remember, knows nothing about film. She's not a filmmaker. She's a health policy advocate. She knows nothing about this. And all she knows is that I'm producing scientifically-based documentaries. And she looked at me and said, you mean you cheated? You che- I can't believe it. You cheated, she said to me. She, she couldn't believe that, that we had done this. And that was another wake-up call for me because, again, um, most filmmakers wouldn't think twice about this. I mean, what's the big deal? We're just putting in sound. And they've got a point. I mean, both sides have a point. Gail has a good point because, because once she realizes the sound wasn't real, she, she well, what am I listening to? I mean, you know, she, she felt cheated. But filmmakers also have a fair point when they're saying, well, what's the, I mean, that is filmmaking. Filmmaking is, is you know, is cheating. Filmmaking is, is, is doing things you need to create an experience when people watch it on the screen. Both sides have some, have some validity uh, to them. Um, but I think, I think the bottom line, Jake, is that filmmakers, wildlife filmmakers, need to be more sensitive to people like Gail who feel outraged when they suddenly realize that what they're listening to is not real. They watch the film on whales or bears or wolves, whatever it is. They watch these types of films assuming they are authentic, real, truthful, and accurate. And when they find that it find out that it isn't, it undermines the whole belief in these that undermines their faith in these types of films. And that is a dangerous thing for us we filmmakers. When when our audiences suddenly begin to question uh, what we do and the validity, authenticity of what we do, that is something we have to be very wary, you know, wary of. Well, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because, you know, I think when you're talking about putting audio over, uh, you know, there's two ways you could have filmed that. You know, you're ethically staying back the other side of the valley, filming the bears so that you're not interfering with their behavior. And so you're, you're viewing natural behavior of a bear doing its thing. Now, you're not going to be able to film sound at that kind of range. So adding it in after, you know, that, that's the lower end of the spectrum. But then, of course, the far end of the spectrum is this manipulating wildlife um like you said you know perhaps using captive animals building a den um, or even handling wildlife i know there's a um uh, an incredible you know piece of footage of and, and you talk about this in your book brady bar with a reticulated python right, um pulling right, the right. pulling the snake out of a crevice in a cave and end, ends up getting bitten by it while submerged in kind of guano um, right. guano water inside this cave and and in Brady's own words, it's a train wreck and it really is i mean watching yep. that footage it's a train wreck right. he's screaming. Right, right. It's right. super unprofessional. It, you know, yeah. it's dramatic TV that I would yeah. have hoped if I was him that at the end of the show, they would have chosen not to put that footage in. Um, but they did. And it is, uh, you know, it's a tra- it's train wreck, right? But of course, that yeah, right, is what right. builds audiences in this day well, that's and age. Right. He, went, he went on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and, and, uh, and uh, you know, bra- bragged about it, talked about it. Uh, right. So they were very, they were, it's a train wreck, but they were very proud of it, you know. 
So where is this, where is the line that we can draw in the sand? Because at the end of the day, you've got these two very far away uh, ethical issues. Um, you know, Foley sound all the way to the other end of the spectrum. How do, yeah. we, do we draw a line in the sand and say, you don't go over this line for any issue? Or do well, we have to take each issue individually and, and draw a line for that issue? Well, um, I think uh, uh, actually the answer is a, a little bit of both. Because, um, but, but let me answer it this way: there are, there are you, 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 you had those two poles, Jake. You just talked about the Foley sound, which is fairly, fairly you know, low, low level ethical violation. Or a lot of people wouldn't even say it was an ethical violation. Towards the other end, the Python story you told. Um, those are two extremes. But let me, let me, let me frame my answer in this way: there are three ethical problems in wildlife filmmaking. One is where the audience is deceived. Two is where the animals are abused. And three is where the conservation message is not, not, uh, forth, not clear. And is not is not even mentioned, and those three issues um, uh, are there's some gray in them actually. It's not isn't because um, it's not all black and white. Because let's take the well, first one: audience deception, um, uh, which which would include the Foley Sound story that you talked about, um, or any time when the audience deceived. You can argue, I think, reasonably persuasively, that that you know the audience is deceived from the very beginning of every film because the way you put the film, the way you do their editing, all this is a is a form of deception right. in yeah. a in a way. But the the but the way I look at it is 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 that if if their film is also doing good, teaching people about the natural world in an accurate way, um, encourage them to think in a more conservation-minded um, way. If, they, if, it's, if, this is, if good things are happening, if people are getting educated, then I think some deception is acceptable. I mean, you know, adding is fully sound. No one's really getting hurt. So really, I come out uh, in, on the opposite side from Gail. I mean, even though Gail was outraged that she'd been deceived, I mean, I myself... Uh, consider that not a significant um, ethical um, an issue, and I would I would do that ag again. Now, um, there may be some kinds of deception um, which are not acceptable, um, and and some of these actually cross these three areas I talked about. They they sort of actually cross over. You know, they 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 overlap. For example, if you want to get a picture of a snake coming down a, a tree, perhaps falling out of it, and you want to put the camera underneath on the ground and have the snake come towards it, the way to do that is take the snake up a toward, carry it up, and drop it. So there's an element of cruelty there, and obviously deception, because the audience thinks that the, the snake fell, fell naturally. Um, so there you have deception and animal abuse um, mixed, uh, mixed together. Now, so... Going back to this idea of you know things not being black and white on the on the abuse side on the animal abuse issue it's much it's actually much clearer because often um, you know most of us don't want animals abused and certainly our audiences don't um, and therefore it's an easier call to make but even then there are some areas which are not are are sort of grayish because what you know if a film is going to do a lot of good conservation. 
and it involves an animal experiencing a little agitation, a little aggravation, um, a little harassment, but not much, you know, a little, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, one could say it, I think I would, that, okay, look, I'm prepared for an animal to be slightly bothered interfered with for a bit as long as it's not hurt or or and you know since you know but just just aggravated a bit um that's okay if the film's going to do a lot of a lot of good and we see this problem all the time with getting two people people getting too close to animals in order to film them and then getting too close the animals get disturbed and upset and uh and you know so again it's all um this is why I said earlier on to your question, Jake, it's, 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 the answer is both, because in some ways you have to look at the particularities of the particular situation, you know, how close, how close are they getting, how, you know, are they really bothering the animal, is the animal really upset, you know, then, then it's not good. If it's just mildly disturbed, maybe it's okay. So, um, so sorry, that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, 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 I, th- I think that answers it very well. I mean, I think there is a... There's an ethical line of which, you know, to tell a good, impactful con- uh, conservation story, um, th- there has to be some manipulation to a degree to be able to f- tell a full story. And I think anyone who's ever made a wildlife film uh, knows that, that it, it, they're very hard to make. Um, I mean, if, you've, if you're a filmmaker and you, you're working with actors and, you, you know, films are hard enough to make when you can manipulate your actors right. to tell a story. Right. But when right. you're working with and the, the, the good old saying of um, uh, children and animals, you know, mm-hmm. it's very hard to manipulate. And so you've got yeah. to try and tell your story. And if the message is there, that's the important thing. I think there's a big divide between those films and shows that have a good, clear message that are made for impact um, and the entertainment side of things, which we're seeing a lot of these days, which are made purely for entertainment um, and, and more kind of shock value. And mm-hmm. um, hopefully we're going to see a move away from those, which I think is already starting to happen. And, and, and along those lines, really, do you have you started to see, I mean, I know your first book, Shooting in the Wild, your first book in this series, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. came out in 2010 uh, when I first met you, actually, at the, um, the Wildlife Film right. Festival. Um, right, right. Do you, have you seen a change in in ethics in wildlife filmmaking since you kind of came out with that? Uh, and I don't mean just because of your book. I just mean in general. Are things moving towards a more ethical standpoint with uh, making these movies? I, I the the, um, the I think the answer, Jake, is that um, there are, there are movements. I mean. Paradoxically, there are movements both ways. In other words, the pressure for high ratings is so intense that you still um, uh, have this, the, the, the network still experiences tremendous pressure uh, to produce things which are high uh, dramatic and, uh, and exciting um, to, in order to get ratings. If they don't get high ratings, they're not going to be kept on, on and they're going to lose their jobs. You know, so ratings are everything. On the other hand, you've got now Rich Ross, Ross and others heading up Discovery, and they have come to realize that that films um, which involve anacondas um, eating a person, things like this, which are just mm-hmm. ridiculous, yeah. don't don't are, are are not consistent with the with the with the with the brand they want for Discovery, and so so they themselves. To some extent, are saying, "Wait a minute, we this has gone too far. We're not, we're not going to, 
um, we're not going to uh, produce uh, 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 Shark Week in an irresponsible way. We're we're not going to produce um, uh, films um, about um, uh, where they uh, pretended there was a um, a a, a huge. uh, way, uh, oh, shark the shark. In the sea. Yeah, Meg- the Megalodon, shark I think, or Me- yeah, yes, yeah. Me- yeah, Megalodon, and um, and so so to answer your question, it's it's not an easy thing to answer because at any one time there's tons of different programming coming out. So, but I would I would say this that that on the one hand there's still the pressure. Those of us who are conservatives have to be very much on our toes and combat that type of irresponsible program because it's still out there. Um, on the other hand, I think these networks themselves are beginning to realize that um, they they stand to benefit um, if they produce films which are ethical and responsible. Um, and so there's pressure, I think, both both ways. And it, it you know, it's one of those things, and, and I think we've all been in this situation where when you're making uh, a show, documentary, um, typically you're always answering to a network. If you're making it for a network, they, you know, you're, they're looking for a certain style of show, and you, you're out yeah. trying to make that. Um, and I guess, you know, this is a difficult question. There's two questions here. Uh, one is, you know, who is the onus on? Is it on the network? to be ethical in their idea of what you're going out to shoot? Or is it on the filmmaker actually out in the field to be ethical in the way they're filming it? And also, what kind of advice would you have if you uh, for, for new filmmakers when they get into a career with filmmaking um, and suddenly they find themselves with a crew of 5 or 10 or 15 and suddenly they're asked to do something as part of a crew that they find unethical? Um, but really it could be a, a, you know, it's a career move for them because I know from experience that if you're with a large crew and things don't go quite the way you think they should go, you know, TV is one of those cutthroat industries. A lot of people know each other. And if you don't do something you're asked to do, you could be out on your ear and and find it hard to get another job. You know, what, what advice have you yeah. got for that kind of uh, situation? Such a good question, uh, Jake. So let me start with the first part of your question. The onus is on both, both the networks and the filmmakers, but particularly on the networks. And this is the point, one of the points I make in my book, Confessions of a Wildlife Filmmaker. Um, networks have the ultimate responsibility. They, they are ultimately responsible for what goes on the air. So they have to be, uh, have to show leadership um, here in, in saying what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And I, I would point out uh, and commend the BBC, for example, under Tim Martin, for the work they've done uh, to educate their staff on, on, uh, about um, ethics and wildlife. They've done, they've done a very good job, and I'd like to see Nat Geo and, and Discovery uh, copy, uh, emulate them, do, do, this, do a similar uh, thing. But having said that, Wildlife filmmakers are often on their own out in the out in the field, and they must also be responsible uh, too. Now, let me come to the second part of your your question because that's such a good one. I mean, how do if you're a young person, you've just joined, you're just starting your career, you want to do well, you're you're eager to, you're ambitious to do be successful, and uh, and you're on a on a small team of of a production unit and, and a small filmmaking unit, and you're asked to do something that, <clears throat> you know, to uh, to type a wolf or to do something which you think, well, wait a minute, I, I don't like that. I don't like this. I'm not comfortable doing it. What do you do? Well, what do you do, I think, is 
voice because you can't stay up, you can't stand up and and sound self righteous and say, look, <clears throat> we can't do this, you know, because you will lose your job and that's the end of it. Um, and then you'll lose your influence too because you won't be there to, to to do, you know. So what you do is you you just say you raise the questions gently to your boss, to the whoever leading you, or if you, if you're the boss to the network and say, hey, um, look, I'm not completely comfortable with this, and I'm a, and then put I think. Speak to their self-interest. If people learn about this, you know, this is going to hurt hurt the, the, the hurt the, the network. If you if, if if we were to do this and the, the word gets out, um, it's going to hurt the network. So I think um, speak to their self-interest. The, the networks don't want to be lambasted, lacerated, uh, 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 criticized um, in the press for doing things um, not which aren't good. So it's very embarrassing when this happens to, to networks. And so I think that the, my advice to England person would be to don't remain silent, but speak up in a gentle, polite um, way, just expressing your concerns without alienating other people and see if you can win people over to your viewpoint. Suggest a different way of doing it or, or, uh, or suggest uh, if, it's, if it involves um, causing pain to animals, uh, maybe doing it in, in a different way which doesn't involve so much, so much pain. So that, that's about all I can say on that, Jake. Yeah, certainly. I think that's great advice. I mean, it's it, there's certainly conversations that are worth having and, and should be had in that uh, kind of situation. And, and on that similar theme, in, uh, giving advice in general to uh, newcomers kind of starting out, um, aside from the ethical issues, um, what advice, if there was one piece of advice, one nugget that you could pass on to people looking to break into the industry? And in a very changed world, I mean, now there are so many things we can do on Line. There's so many distribution platforms. There's not just network TV. What advice would you give to someone who's just thinking about picking up a camera and starting to shoot? Well, the 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 the, the, the I'm not, I'm going to pass over the obvious advice, which is to um, to work hard, to learn technical skills, to learn how to use a camera effectively and powerfully. I mean, I'm going to assume now that that someone does all that so that they can actually provide a service to a film film unit they can actually you know they, they have skills in editing or writing or cinematography whatever so but so i so let's just assume that's that's all taken care of the 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 next bit of advice jake i would say to people is work on yourself work on yourself to be the kind of person that other people want to work with that in other words you are honest you are straightforward, you are a collaborator, you know how to work with people, you listen well, um, you give good constructive feedback. Um, and so you're the kind of person, um, and you're cheerful and optimistic, and you work hard, you shop on time. You know, you know there's all these, prof- what, what you could label under, under the broad uh, broad word of, of professional professionalism, you know, behaving professionally. So I think if you shape yourself into the kind of person that other people want to work with, you are going to be able to find work more because people will sort seek you out. They will say, "Gosh, that Fred Smith over there—he's so pleasant to work with. He gets the job done. He's efficient. He's always come up with new, innovative ideas." And um, people want to work with. So that's the that's the best advice I can give. To obviously, you still want to you want to obviously you want to be able to uh, know how to tell a good story. 
and all those other things. But 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 the things that people forget, um, I think, more than more than other things, is just being the kind of person that other people want to work with because then they will seek you out to and, and want you to join their teams and this is the way to have a thriving a thriving uh, career yeah i think that's fantastic advice um, I, I certainly throughout my career have seen um people keep their job based on their personality more on their skill set more than right. their skill set um, purely because right. when you're in remote areas working as a, uh, a crew you yep. need to get on, and, and when people yep. work effectively together, you end up right. with a good end project right. or product. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Last right. question right. for you, Chris, because I know you're busy and you need to uh, get on there. Um, last question for you: what's What's the most incredible experience you've had throughout your filming career? Um, I think it's going on location. Um, and just seeing the world. I mean, going to Alaska and and uh, seeing Denali and going um, going to the South uh, South uh, Pacific uh, to Tahiti, um, swimming with swimming swimming with um, spinner dolphins, um, going to Hawaii and swimming with humpback whales. I mean, I think those those types of experience. Um, uh, are very sort of memorable. They are exciting. They make uh, they make the job interesting. I had the pleasure of taking my children with me when I my daughters with me when I when I did those sorts of trips, um, and um, so so I think so I think um, those are some of the, my best memories of um, of of being in the business. And the other thing, Jake, I think is some of the many of the people um, I've met in the business and work with over the over the years, um, they've been wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful people, you know, Howard Hall, Hardy Jones, there's so many, so many um, people who are just uh, really uh, terrific human beings and just an honor to to be around to work with and to have as colleagues so i've been i've been very lucky there as well well that that's fantastic chris and I, again i want to thank you for your time today i also uh, want to thank you for all the work over the years because your films um are amazing and an inspiration and your your books shooting in the wild and confessions of a, a wildlife filmmaker of both of which i'll put links to on the masterwildlifefilmmaking.com uh, website page so people can get to them both those books are fantastic they really are um insightful in terms of seeing your accounts of what has happened throughout your career and and i think really voicing the whole ethical issue within the wildlife filmmaking industry so thank you again and uh, it was a real pleasure speaking oh. with you today jake thank you i was delighted to have this conversation and 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 good luck with this with this uh, with this uh, with this master series i'm delighted to be to be on it and and thanks so much for having me on jake i really appreciate it take good care and you my pleasure if you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com, where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening.